Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We will be in verses 1 through 11 uh, this week, um, particularly verse 11, and then we'll be back in verses 1 through 11 next week on Easter Sunday, but particularly verses 9 and 10, just so you're aware. Um, This week we'll largely focus on verse 11 and next week 9 and 10, Uh, but let, let me read Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 for some context. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, through, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, as God did from his Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, the word of the head of the church, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the word superintended by his Spirit, the word that speaks authoritatively, without error, and sufficiently. Your holy and true word, we ask that as we receive that word, your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the church. That we would be people who fear temporary faith. rather of trust that endures in your Son. That we would be those who strive after entering that rest, who endure in the race that we have, that we would have that kind of faith, rather than faith that is false, that steps out in some way and gives up and relents and quits. We pray that your spirit would give us the gift of that faith. That as we look to your son and his word, as we hear what he says, as we participate in these means of grace this morning, that your spirit would build us up. That he would pour out grace upon grace in Christ. And so we would endure. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, I began addressing this text saying we need to enter that rest, that rest being Christ. And I said at the beginning, um, and it really titled the sermon, Let Us Fear. And as I got after that, I talked about what kind of fear we ought to have and what kind of fear we ought not to have. And the fear being commended to us in verse 1 of chapter 4 is, let us fear, if you will, temporary faith. The kind of faith that says, yes, I intellectually agree with Christ, that Christ is the Lord and Savior. Yes, I think I ought to look to Him and be saved. Uh, but it's just sort of a temporary gig for me. I'm kind of signing up for it now, but as soon as I get distracted, as soon as obstacles get put in my way, as soon as other things more attractive come along, I'm going to run after those, never to return to Christ. I have temporary faith, not faith that endures. We ought to fear having temporary faith. And I said that the fear of temporary faith really shows up in the fear of the Lord, in that we rest in Him, we trust His grace, we continue to pursue Him. We continue to look to the means of grace that He's given, the Word and prayer and the church, so that we might endure. And today I really want to speak about more of the same, except instead of the title being, Let Us Fear, Temporary Faith, this week it'll be, Let Us Strive. Let Us Strive. Let Us Labor. Let Us Work Hard. It's a fascinating kind of title um, that is really coming out of this command in verse 11. Look at what verse 11 says. As, as really the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, sums up this argument starting in verse 1. He really brackets it. Let us fear in verse 1. Now look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. He's talking about the same rest. The rest that is found only in Christ. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We're being commanded here to strive to enter that rest. But it sounds odd as a command, doesn't it? Strive to enter rest. It sounds contradictory as a command. Work hard to rest. What? What is meant here? To strive to enter that rest could be translated, let us labor. Let us work hard and make great efforts. Let us struggle and fight vigorously. Let us strive. We're being commanded to strive and work vigorously to enter that rest so that we don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. See, when you fall, you don't reach the thing you're striving for. When you're running in a race, if you fall down and don't get up, you don't reach the end of the race. Simple enough? So let us strive. The idea here is that we are fighting vigorously, working hard, struggling with all our might to reach that rest. And he's saying if we fail to labor, if we fail to strive, then we won't reach that rest. And now notice the point of comparison here when he says, 
Let, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Notice the point of comparison. Fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's a comparison to the wilderness generation of Israel that he's just spoken of in chapter 3. They started down the road toward Canaan. They believed the promise, if you will, temporarily. And their temporary faith, their false faith, was shown forth in their bad fruit, in their disobedience. It was their unbelief that drove their disobedience. Now, Russell dealt with this a couple weeks ago quite well, so you can go back and listen to that sermon. That's what drove their disobedience. And what he's saying is, we need to strive to enter that rest, lest we fall in the same way they did. They started down the road to Canaan. They started down the road to the promised land, but they had temporary false faith. And because of their unbelief, they gave up. They didn't finish. Their faith was temporary, and any obedience you saw on them was temporary. In fact, they seemed to trip over every obstacle, run after every temptation, fall by every sort of disobedience. These are the people who at Mount Sinai, when they first got to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, God lays out for them, do this, do this, do this. And they say to him, all that the, this is what they announce as a crowd, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They say the same thing again in Exodus 24. While they're still on Mount Sinai, and Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments on the Tablet of Stone, they are down at the camp going, we don't see God, we don't see God's representative Moses, what's going on, we're a little fearful. Quick, get together your gold, get together your silver, put in the fire, they make a golden calf, and they start worshiping it. Of course, you know the story, Moses comes down the mountain and says, You've created this golden calf, and you're worshiping it. And they say, well, we just threw this stuff in the fire and out popped the golden calf, right? The kind of excuse that we give for ourselves. You laugh at it and say it's ridiculous, but but we are masters at self-justification. And that's essentially what they're trying to do. What's amazing is they do that while they're still at the same mountain at which they had just said on more than one occasion all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And yet they failed. They had a kind of temporary faith, a sort of temporary obedience. They didn't strive to enter that rest. They didn't fear temporary faith. I, I want to speak to this because I think um, it's important we spend a lot of time here I had planned to preach verse 11 through 16 this morning, and I'm only going to preach verse 11. And the reason is, is because pastorally I thought we ought to spend a lot of time here because there's, there are some significant misunderstandings of the nature of Christian faith and the nature of Christian obedience. When we think that faith means I pray a prayer, I walk down an aisle, I agree that it's true, and then I go on living about my merry life. And you know how I grow in sanctification? Well, I just kind of let go and let God. I just sort of wait for him one day to make me want to be holy. To cause me to get up and read my Bible. Because I'm just kind of kicking back, 
sinning it up, living a worldly life, confessing I love Jesus, confessing I know he's my Savior, living however I want, and, and being authentic. Being authentic. Which is just another way of saying being worldly and self-justifying it. Being lazy and excusing it. Because it's inauthentic to just get up and read my Bible even though I don't feel like it. It's inauthentic to get on my knees and start praying even though I don't feel like it. It's inauthentic to come to church and sing and hear the word read and gather the saints even though I don't feel like it. I need to wait until somehow the Holy Spirit brings me to a level of sanctification that I finally want all those things and then I do them. That's being authentic. No, that's being sinful, rebellious, lazy, making justifications for why you want to pursue your flesh. That's what that's being. That's failing to strive to enter that rest. Now, what is the rest that you're striving toward? As I said last week, Christ is that rest. Christ is that rest. So what Hebrews is saying when it says, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience is really quite simple. Hebrews is simply saying this, let us sincerely believe and obey that we may find Christ to be the true rest of our souls. Just believe that Christ is the true rest of our souls and obey him. And keep believing that Christ is the true rest for our souls and keep obeying him. In other words, we're being called to faith that endures and we're being called to abandon or repent of faith that is temporary. True faith endures, temporary faith quits. Saving faith, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit, endures. It runs to the end. And Hebrews is telling you in verse 1 to fear temporary faith, which will never reach the end. And in verse 11, to strive in true faith and obedience lest you fall like other temporary and hypocritical believers have done. Think of this like a race, right? I said this last week. Think of it like a race. You do not get the prize unless you struggle all the way to the finish line. I know we live in a culture where it says every participant gets a trophy. But Hebrews is saying that some folks will not get the trophy. Hear that? Hebrews is like the mean teacher who only gives the trophy to the winner. Right? In other words, if you don't finish the race, what Hebrews is saying is you get nothing. Well, or maybe I should say at least nothing good. If you don't finish the race, you do get a fearful expectation of judgment. Look at 1 Corinthians. Keep your hand in Hebrews 4. 4 sorry, and look at 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. And look at verse 24. Paul is speaking of himself and his evangelistic efforts, his ministry efforts among Jews and Gentiles. And in verse 24 he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. He's making an analogy here. Notice what he says. So run 
that you may obtain it. Run that you may obtain it. That's what he's saying. You're in a race. He's comparing the Christian life to a race. Run for the prize. Run that you might receive the prize. Now listen, everyone who runs to the end of the race receives the prize. So don't push the analogy further than he means for it to go. He's not saying that we're all running toward Christ and whoever is the most faithful and obedient gets him and the rest of us go to hell. That's not his point. Okay, don't push the analogy farther than it's meant to go. He's just using an athletic analogy that we would understand. The person who runs gets the prize. So let us run. Now look what he says as he defines what that running is, the means to the end of running. Look what he said. That, that every athlete, verse 25, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. So when the athlete controls himself, when he watches his diet and his exercise, when he gives up the things he wants and makes sure that he gets enough sleep and all the things that the athlete does to train for the race, they do it for a perishable wreath. And then he goes on to say, look, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. In other words, the, the real athlete isn't running with no purpose. He's got a goal in mind, an end. I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, I don't just, you know, box and throw my hands out in random places. I have something I'm hitting. I have a target, a goal, an end. But I discipline my body, verse 27, and keep it under control. Now look what Paul says. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What if I spend my life in gospel ministry preaching to others about Christ, don't discipline myself, don't strive to enter that rest myself, and find myself condemned. You know that's possible for pastors, right? They can even preach the right gospel and still have false temporary faith and not endure and be damned. I think you hear the language of an athlete in training and competition, don't you? The athlete disciplines his diet. He walks away from the foods that he would like to eat, that maybe the person not competing in a contest wants to eat. He walks away from them and gives them up. It's not because he feels like it. You don't think that the athlete in serious training wants to eat the ice cream that you're eating? Of course he does. It's always a good time for ice cream, right? And so the athlete knows that, right? And he wants to eat it too, but he disciplines his body. He gives it up. You don't think that he wants to um, lay in bed an extra couple hours and sleep rather than get up and go and exercise hard? Of course he wants to, but he disciplines his body and he gets up and he works out. You don't think that in the midst of the the exercise, he doesn't get tired and just want to stop and say, I'm going to just camp out and relax for a while? Of course he does. But he keeps pushing harder and harder and harder because he wants to win. 
He has this prize that he's participating. You don't think he wants to stay up late at night and binge watch Netflix with you? Probably he does. But he goes to bed because he knows he needs proper rest. Do you see what I'm getting at here? He's not doing all the things that he feels like doing because he has a bigger goal in mind. And so he's disciplining his body in pursuit of that greater goal. And what Paul's saying is that's much like the Christian life. Just as the athlete has a greater affection than the enjoyment of those things that the rest of us are enjoying temporarily, uh, he has a greater affection for this thing out here, and therefore that greater affection expels his lesser affections. And he pursues that greater thing. He desires the prize above all else. And so he disciplines his body. He trains himself. He runs for the prize. The prize is of greater importance to his heart than the daily refreshments being offered to him. I I recently watched the movie Free Solo. It's a documentary. If you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, then you should see it. It's a document that's not an imperative, by the way. I can't bind your conscience. You don't have to see it if you don't want to. I have no authority to, right? It's 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 a suggestion. It's a documentary about the greatest free solo rock climber in history. The movie depicts this man's commitment to climbing the face of El Capitan in Yosemite. If you guys have seen El Capitan, 3,200 feet of sheer rock face, of climbing that with just his hands and feet. No ropes, no other equipment at all. Hands and feet, he has a little chalk. He may be watching this documentary, the most dogged and determined athlete I have ever seen. One of his friends comments, he's like an Olympian who if he doesn't win the gold, he finds his death, right? Win the gold or die. That's kind of his, alter, that's kind of his option, right? In climbing El Capitan. He, he's so doggedly determined to get this done that I actually honestly wondered if he was some kind of autistic savant. He just couldn't give up this goal. He was so relentlessly focused on this goal that he worked as hard as he could toward it. He ate a very strict diet. He swore off even commitment to any relationships that would deter him. He actually had a girlfriend who said, um, you know, he he had told, if I ever had a commitment to anything bigger than this, then then I would would give this up. I would take the dangers into mind and, uh, and, and I would not climb this rock. And she says, well, am I not... Am I not a commitment? He says, no, no. I'm still going to climb the rock. If I die, I die. Right? I mean, this guy is focused. Focused. He actually says at one point in the movie that he, ha- he gives his life to this goal even if he falls from the rock and dies. And there's a few places where you're pretty confident he's going to. They film as a documentary. It's not, it's, they, you see him actually climb this rock. He says this. The reason he was so driven toward it is because it was the closest thing to perfection he'd ever achieved. Friends, that's analogous to the Christian life. Christ is our eternal rest. He is perfection. He's perfection. And we're supposed to discipline ourselves like an athlete running toward him. Doggedly undistractedly pursuing him. 
If I want Christ all above all else, if I want to dwell with him, excuse me, excuse me, if I want to dwell dwell with him forever, then I discipline myself and I run for that prize. Temporary faith fears, excuse me, true faith fears temporary faith. And therefore, true faith strives. True faith obeys. True faith lays aside all distractions and resists all temptations and runs to Christ. So let, me, let us consider three obstacles to our running the race with endurance. So what I want to do this morning is I want to consider three obstacles to running that race with endurance, to our striving to enter that rest. Here's the first one, first obstacle. Natural human needs. Hear that? Natural human needs, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it, natural human weakness. And when I say natural human weakness, I mean in the sense of dependency, of being contingent created beings. This is not a category of sin. I don't want you to hear what I'm saying here as, when I say natural human needs and dependency as an obstacle to the, in running the race with endurance, I don't mean natural human sinfulness. We'll get to that in a minute. Or, well, which is a result of the fall. I just mean you're creatures. You're weak as creatures. You're dependent as creatures. You have needs that you've been designed to have as creatures. And they can be obstacles in the, ra- in the race. I'm not talking about sin. We all have needs that are natural to be met. We are created and need family. Created for family, we need family. We are created for and need friendship, companionship. We are created for and we need food and water and sleep. None of those things are sinful. We are created for and we need safety from the elements. We need that. We are designed to fight for our lives. Listen, death is not natural. You understand that? It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's why the call, I want you to hear this, why the call to self-denial is so startling to us. It's a call that is contrary to our human needs. Look at Luke 14. You can keep your hand in Hebrews 4 and look at Luke 14. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. And what what I want you to understand is Jesus is going to call you as a disciple to forsake even your non-sinful human needs. Look at verse 25 of Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Listen, God has given you a father and a mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. God has given you life. Those are all good things. Those are all things you're actually designed for and need. Yet Jesus says, if you want to be his disciple, 
you have to be willing to walk away from those things. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, the bearing of the cross is not like I have a difficult mother-in-law. Okay, that's not what that means. The cross is an instrument of, of humiliating Roman persecution and death. In other words, if you're not willing to die for your life to end, even the good natural parts of your life to come to an end, for you to end and look to Christ, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, you can, you can feel the tension of that, can't you? I mean, that's a call to self-denial that is contrary to my human needs. Do you feel the tension of it? Now listen to what he continues to say, verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first down, sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In other words, if you want to follow me, you better count the cost. Do you have enough to complete building the tower? If you're going to start down this road, you need to finish. Have you thought about the end goal, and do you have enough to finish? Don't start if you're not going to finish. Count the cost. Look what he goes on to say. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? What king doesn't first size up his army and say, can I defeat that king before he goes out to meet him in war? Only an idiot king does that. You guys follow? Okay. Only a foolish builder says, I'm going to lay a foundation without the money to put the building on top of it. Count the cost. Don't start following me if you don't understand what this means. This means walking away from everything. Count the cost. Are you willing to die to you? Goes on in verse 32, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. See, that's what the king who's smart does. I don't have enough to fight the war, so I'll just ask for terms of peace, right? Now look what he goes on to say. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Renounce all that he has. You cannot be Christ's disciple unless you have deemed him worthy to lose your whole life for. He is to be your great treasure, the great prize at the end of the race. See, temporary, what Jesus is getting at here is temporary faith sees Christ as a nice addition to my life. See, it says, you know, I'm not going to give up much for him. I might give up a little for him. But hey, what I would like is to have my nice life that I already have, Give up a little here and there so that I get salvation at the end of all these things. I'll, I'll just take, you know, the life I have as my main course, and I'll have a side dish of Jesus, if you please. That's essentially what he's saying temporary faith is. If I can have all that I want out of life and have salvation and death, then I'll take it. And Jesus is saying that's temporary false faith. You haven't counted the cost. It's useless faith. It's non-enduring faith. Look at verse 34 of Luke 14. Salt is good, 
But if salt has lost its taste, its saltiness, if you will, how shall it be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. In other words, there's salty salt, useful salt, disciples who have counted the cost, disciples who understand they're willing to walk away for everything for Christ. And then there's temporary believers, false believers, those who want Jesus as a side addition but won't walk away from almost anything for Christ. That's useless salt. In fact, he says, it isn't even useful for manure. Do you hear that? That's not the kind of thing that you draw crowds with. He has great crowds, verse 25, and he stands in front of great crowds and says, if you've come here because I can produce bread and fish, or I can give you a little bit of a healing, or you might have some promise of some forgiveness, but if you haven't come here to follow me, then you're useless. You ruin manure. Just packs them in, doesn't it? Can't wait for more of that action. Temporary faith, faith that sees Jesus as an addition you to your already nice life is useless faith. And Jesus isn't interested in it. So one major obstacle to our striving is our love of our own lives. Our love of our own lives. We love our wife or our kids or husband or our house or our job or our health or whatever it is more than Christ. Second obstacle to our striving. Second obstacle to our striving is our fallen sinful desires. Our fallen sinful desires. Those which belong to our fallen humanity. What the Bible, when it's speaking of flesh in the, in the sinful sense, means by the term flesh. Sometimes the term flesh just means the human body. Sometimes the term flesh is speaking of sinful, fallen humanity. And what we're saying is these fallen sinful desires are an obstacle to continuing in the faith. We love this world inordinately due to the fall. Too much due to the fall. We have natural and unnatural desires that are called inordinate passions, sinful passions, for which we will forsake everything. We want that thing too much. We want it sinfully. It becomes a kind of lust. Think of the rich young ruler. He walked away from Christ when Jesus told him to give away everything he had. Because he wanted that comfort and wealth too much. He had an inordinate desire for it. A sinful passion for it. Or think of Demas when Paul says of Demas... The Demas in love with this present world has abandoned me. One of his co-laborers in the gospel abandoned him because he had an inordinate desire for this present world. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul addresses this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, particularly with regard to finances and particularly with regard to the, the false teachers who teach falsely to enrich themselves um, with the gospel. We don't have any of those today who have their own television station. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. 
Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So I'm content with what God has given me. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is an inordinate desire for wealth or money. It's a way that we live in this present world. See, it's a natural desire to have what you need. It's an inordinate sinful desire to seek wealth more than you need. I want you to hear that, folks, because we live in a, we live in a country that, that is rife with the message that you ought to have more than you need. You ought to have more than you need. You ought to be comfortable. You ought to have financial freedom, whatever that's supposed to mean. You ought to have those things. Something is wrong if all you have is food and clothing. You need more. Something is wrong if you both have to go to work to have food and clothing. We should all just lounge by the pool and at resorts and just have passive income flowing in and making us wealthy and happy. That's now the American dream. Just, you just have to spend five minutes on social media to see that. That's the message. And Paul's saying that's an inordinate, sinful desire that will wreck your faith. Wreck your faith. But we have lots of natural desires that are inordinate, don't we? It's a natural desire to have what we need. It's a sinful, inordinate desire to have more than we need. It's a natural desire. There's a natural desire for sex. But there's an inordinate, lustful desire for that as well. There's a natural desire for companionship. But there's an inordinate, lustful desire for companionship as well. There is a natural desire for obedient children. But there is an inordinate desire for obedient children as well. There is a natural desire for food and drink, but there is an inordinate desire for food and drink as well. There is a natural desire for comfort and even for respect or honor, but there is also an inordinate desire for those things. We might also have unnatural desires that are always inordinate, like the whole category of sexual perversions that has its own acronym now. But regardless of which of these inordinate desires are your particular vices, the fact is they can all trip us up. They all become obstacles in the race. And we must repent of these desires and see Christ as greater than them all. It's not, I'll take Christ, and can he also deliver me, for me, all these inordinate desires I have. That's the message now, by the way, with the therapeutic gospel. Jesus has come to deliver for you all of your inordinate desires. He's come to make you 
healthy and happy and wealthy. He's come to endorse and affirm you in whatever lifestyle you choose and whatever behavior you choose and however you live your life. You do you. Jesus is there to endorse you while you do it. That's not the call of the Christian life. The call of Christian life is to repent of inordinate desires. Jesus died on the cross for your inordinate desires. Jesus went to the cross and was crucified precisely because you were doing you. Christians, we need to nurture our God-given affections for Christ. Nurture them. You know how you nurture your sinful desires and affections? Meditate on them, pursue them, surround yourself with the company of people who whisper them into your ears. If you got folks whispering into your ears, you deserve better. You deserve more. You, you should be just the way you are. Don't, don't listen to that, th- those haters, et cetera, et cetera. If you have people listen, whispering that in your ears, run from those people. Run. Flee. Because they are put there by the world and the flesh and the devil to help you make shipwreck of faith. We need to nurture godly desires. We've been given a new love for Christ that we now nurture. And we have, as we have ordinary natural desires and inordinate sinful desires that both trip us up. There's one more obstacle I want to talk about this morning. We might call this an external obstacle. I just hinted at it when I said the world, the flesh, and the devil, essentially. The flesh would be an internal obstacle. This will now be external obstacles, the world and the devil. What are the, what are the, if you will, the external temptations and obstacles is the third, the third kind of obstacle to running well. And specifically, I mean the world and the devil. There are external temptations from the world and the devil because there are external enemies, the world and the devil. Listen, there is no neutrality in the spiritual war we're in. Do you understand that? There are those who love Christ, and there are those who hate Christ. Nothing in between. The world system and Satan hate both Jesus and his people. Satan and the world both are battling against you, trying to trip you up, tempting you to be distracted from finishing the race. And you must take seriously that your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is. You guys remember Israel goes toward Canaan, and they fear external temptations, don't they? They faced giants in the land. Those men over there are big. We will lose. Never mind, God just unleashed ten plagues on Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, brought you through the Red Sea by parting it and drowned Pharaoh's whole army in it. Um, there are some big dudes over there, right? We shouldn't go in. They faced giants in the land and they faced idols in their hearts. And we will melt under those kinds of temptations and the fear and enemies of the enemy if we do not continue to strive to enter that rest in Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. In other words, don't be drunk in your mind. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, we're commanded to strive, to run, to labor, to work hard toward our rest in Christ. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, but I'm weak, I'm weary, I'm unable to run well on my own. And you're right. You're right. If you remember what I said last week, false faith is temporary faith. True faith may be either weak faith or strong faith. But weak faith can endure. Strong faith endures. Weak faith endures. True faith endures. This is not a sermon about having strong faith. Certainly about growing in your faith. But this is a sermon about having true faith. Faith that endures rather than temporary faith. Look what he goes on and says in verse 10 of 1 Peter 5. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Trust him. True faith may trip up and fall down, but it gets up and keeps running. Friends, this kind of running with endurance is what Hebrews 11 is addressing. You understand that? It's what Hebrews 11 is addressing. It's addressing people who run with endurance. That's the kind of faith they have. The Old Testament saints had toiled and strived in faith, forsaking all else for Christ. Think of the example of Moses. He sinned, didn't he? He fell. He got distracted. But his faith endured. His faith endured. He paid some heavy temporal punishment for that sin. Some, if you will, severe fatherly discipline for his sin. But he endured. He endured in faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24. Just as an example of Moses, there's multiple examples we could pull here, but I'll give you Moses. By faith, Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now notice what it goes on to say. He considered the reproach of Christ you know Moses was looking to, looking to Christ in faith? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's the most powerful nation on earth in that day, the wealthiest nation on earth in that day. He could have had it all as, Pharaoh, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he wanted Christ more. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, he saw the Lord by faith. And so he endured. Moses endured in faith as he trusted in Christ. Christ was greater than all else to him. Now, look at how several of the other saints that are mentioned here endure through immense difficulty, striving to enter that rest in Christ. Drop down to verse 35 of Hebrews 11. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But look what it goes on to say at the next part of verse 35. Some were tortured. These are Old Testament saints. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Hear what they wanted? The greater reward. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, they they walked away from their natural desires for shelter and home and respect and family and life. They walked away from the fleeting pleasures of sin, inordinate desires for wealth. They endured the temptation and the assault of the world and the devil verse 39, and look at what it goes on to say, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, he does not mean they didn't receive their eternal reward. What he means is Christ didn't come in their lifetime. Look at what it goes on to say, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's because Christ has come to us that they are made perfect because they were looking to him in faith. And now they know him in us. Now, therefore, verse, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, if that's true of the Old Testament saints who hadn't yet seen Christ, for whom Christ had not yet come, though they believed in him, if they endured in that way, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those people were sawn in two, who lived in caves, who were mocked and flogged and dead, who walked away from the reproaches for the reproach of Christ, walked away from the treasures of Egypt. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do you run that race with endurance? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to run, to strive, to labor. We will face every manner of opposition, and we must strive and labor and not lose heart. But but you might be asking, how do we strive, how do we labor? You know, we get that we are supposed to lay aside sin and things that distract us, but what do we take up? You take up the looking to Jesus. You look to Jesus. How do I look to Jesus on a daily basis? Folks, it's so ordinary that it bears constant repeating. We look to faith in Jesus every day by opening his word and hearing the head of the church, Christ, speak to us by his spirit through his word. 
We look to Jesus every day by meditating on what he says, by prayer. We look to Jesus every day through, if you will, fellowship with the believers. Others around us who are journeying with us on the way, who continue to encourage us to look to the prize. We look to Jesus in the preaching of the word and sacraments and corporate worship on the Lord's day. Folks, it's so ordinary that we have to keep reminding ourselves of it. You're like the athlete who forsakes sleep and rich food and comfort to keep training because he has one purpose, to win the prize. One purpose. And you might say, it sounds so hard, it's so beyond me, it seems so impossible, and yes, it is. It is impossible for you in and of yourself. Yet in the face of that impossibility, Jesus will say something so startling, like he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If that's true, then how come it feels so impossibly hard? And Jesus says it's easy and light at the same time. It's true because you aren't running this race alone. You're not striving by yourself, nor are you striving in your own strength. That's what he's going to go on to say in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, you're commanded to strive, but you cannot overcome without the comfortable supply of the Holy Spirit given by the incarnate Son. He sees you in your striving and He sympathizes with you and gives you help in time of need. He works in you and he keeps you as you strive. That's why Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he said, by the way, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's why Paul said in Colossians 1, when he says that he is working, he's doing everything he can to present people mature in Christ, he goes on to say, and I strive or toil with all his energy. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that Jesus makes a good running partner. I don't mean that he's your co-pilot. Okay? The point of this isn't that we're going to get together afterwards and everybody's going to sing Jesus take the wheel, right? That isn't what is about to happen here. I mean that Jesus gives you the same Holy Spirit that carried him through the whole of his life and trials to the cross so that he might empower you to complete the race also. If you will, the church, 
Where are your running partners? Where are your running partners? Jesus is the one who makes you run by his Spirit. So trust the Lord Jesus, your great high priest, and run the race set before you. Let us strive together by his Spirit toward him our great reward. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your Son would be exalted in our lives, that we would be a people who strive by the powerful working of Christ as He gives us the same Spirit who empowered Him throughout His life to walk faithfully as our second Adam. Father, may we look to Him in faith, trust Him, And keep running toward that great prize which is found in him. Father, keep us from obstacles and distractions, whether that be our tendency to to retain our own natural rights in life here over Christ, or whether that be the pursuit of inordinate desires rather than Christ, or whether that be the temptations of the world and the devil and the attacks of them. Whatever it is that's causing us to trip up, that's, that we stumble over, whatever is distracting us, whatever sin is clinging so closely, whatever is weighing us down, we pray that we would cast those things aside, repent, and look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And trust Him. And Father, I pray as a church that we would encourage one another Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today to continue striving to look to Christ, to trust Him, to know Him as our Lord and Savior. And so, on that great day, to not only know Him by faith, but to know Him by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.